Rumor has it there is a secret base hidden underneath the Archelaus. So have you ever been in a spaceship? Don't try this at home. Secrets of Area 51 Reveal. I'm from Series A, not Series B. Who are you, huh? Yeah, hey, Mama. It's time to open your eyes, open your mind, and shift your paradigm. You're tuned in to another episode of All Night with the Living Geek, the podcast in which we investigate and discuss high strangeness in the weird world in which we live. I'm your host, Taylor, and across from the virtual desk for me tonight is my brother, Seb. Seb, how you doing? Good evening, everybody. I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) The sun is shining. The birds are singing. It's a beautiful day outside. Um, Looks like we might have a little bit of rain coming in in a couple days, which, you know, we can always definitely use more of that. um, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That is for sure. How are you Uh, doing? Thank you. I'm well. I'm I'm getting over an actual actual cold. Mm. Um, Oddly enough, as we're about to talk about someone named Cold... I wonder if that was intentional. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, no, duh, did a did a rapid test last night just to make sure it wasn't like a second bout of COVID. It is not. Okay. Um, this is an honest to goodness uh, tail end of a cold. So I will um, endeavor not to cough. Uh, my hand is near the mute button just in case because uh, I don't want to blow anybody's ears out. Um, anyway, uh, John, unfortunately, not able to be with us uh, this month. He had a uh, friend's birthday party to attend, and uh, uh, we wish he was here because, honestly, it's always handy having a soundboard, and I just don't I don't have one. Mm. Oh, that's okay. We will make do. Yeah, our road to Hellier continues this month. Um, and before we hop onto that road, uh, Seb, what is new in your weird this month? Well, I was very happy to discover in my messy apartment a relic from my childhood that had been missing for many years. I thought it may have been lost. And it was actually a small crystal ball made of quartz that I got from a store that we know and remember very fondly in the city of Capitola, Dragonwood and the Magic Crystals. Got it back in the 1980s. Um, Not sure what the proper um, form of divination with a a crystal ball is. Maybe scrying? I don't know. I, I don't know what the proper uh um actually i wouldn't even have know how to use a crystal ball if, if it hit me in the head uh to be honest and yeah, and hopefully it doesn't hit you in the head those things can be heavy they, and can cause blunt force trauma y- indeed indeed but um it was just a fun little discovery i was really excited to uh find it again so yeah i've got well, that. that's cool yeah yeah and and if correct me if i'm wrong dragonwood also had a los gatos location yes i believe a short so. time yeah. okay mm-hmm. but the one in capitola was definitely definitely the cooler one. Oh yeah if you ever needed a pewter letter opener in the shape of excalibur it was the place to go um, <laughs> that's for sure yeah that's for sure now is this is your is your uh quartz orb is it is it opaque is it translucent it's translucent but there's a great deal of grain structure on the inside that, oh, okay um, gives it some character i think so yeah for sure yeah but neat well, thank you. What's what's new in your weird? Um, honestly, not a whole lot. But I will say that in the points of the month where I was working on research for this episode, <clears throat> I feel like things would get weird. 
as I was researching and, and making connections. A lot of stuff that I was listening to, like I will always highly recommend the Penny Royal podcast. Um, it's, it's done by a couple of guys. They're in Somerset, Kentucky. Um, they were, uh, they were in season two of Hellier. Um, and some of the connections that they are making in this like almost grander picture of, of weirdness and, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I even know how to describe it, but there were points where I was listening to stuff and I was like, wow, okay, I'm feeling connections to what we're researching with, with this month's episode. Um, so that, that was weird or, you know, as I would dive into research, it would become very all consuming. Mm. Like everything else I was focused on at the time kind of just pushed to the sides. And I was, I was hyper-focused on, on our topic because it starts, I mean, I'd almost say it starts innocuously enough. And then as more time passes and we'll, we'll get into this in more detail. It just, it gets weirder and it kind of spreads out and Mm. it's, it's a strange thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what is tonight's topic? Well, we are talking about injured cold and uh, Woody Derenberger. Mm, wow. Yeah. So on the evening of November 2nd, 1966, Woodrow Derenberger was driving home from his job selling stereos and repairing sewing machines when he was passed by and then stopped by a UFO. The person who stepped forth from that craft communicated telepathically and introduced himself as cold, not the cold like I've got in my head right. What proceeded to happen from that point forward is one of the strangest UFO flaps in the history of the phenomena. When Indrid Cold met Woody Derenberger is one of the biggest crossroads on our road to Hellier, and that we had to pull off the highway, put the van in park, and immerse ourselves in the very integral tale uh, that kicked off the year of the Garuda. Wow. Yeah, it's um, it, one of the first things I want to say yeah. with respect to Indrid Cold as a person, as a character. Um, there are a lot of people and there are a lot of websites <clears throat> out there that go, oh, Indrid Cold, the grinning man, mm-hmm. making him out almost mm-hmm. as if he's some sort of creepypasta mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, character. And I just want to make it really clear from the start, especially with all the research that I've done um, mm-hmm. and that I think that you've done, is that at no point does Indrid Cold come across as like creepy or even villainous. No. Oh no. Um it, quite the opposite in mm-hmm. fact. Um so if um if you are someone listening who has only kind of been exposed to injured cold as some sort of like creepy mysterious figure with this giant almost um uh Oscar Romero-esque grin aka the 1960s Joker from mm-hmm. the Batman mm-hmm. uh, TV series this is this is not the injured cold that we researched um, and I just want to make that clear from the start um, because I feel very strongly about it apparently um, <laughs> but but Seb, I want to ask you ba just just at the start of this at the, at when we said hey this is gonna be our topic mm-hmm. let's start researching mm-hmm. where like from your perspective yeah where where on the spectrum of truth do you kind of put uh Woodrow Derenberger's account of of meeting Indrid Cold like when you first heard about it is like oh yeah this this 
totally seems legit or oh this dude totally comes across as as a hoaxer or he's just playing something up for money like like where were you on that spectrum that's a really great question um i'll be really honest when we first talked about doing tonight's episode i was pretty excited because growing up as a child consuming mass quantities of paranormal content like episodes of unsolved mysteries and reading the time life series of mysteries of the unknown books um basically injured cold never showed up in any of those things he was completely off my paranormal radar growing up so for me it was almost like a blank slate um the first time that I can recall being aware of the existence of an entity or a character named Indrid Cold was actually um, the 2002 film, the Richard Gere film, The Mothman Prophecy. Right, and, right. And that film, I mean, it's kind of a weird film, but more or less Indrid Cold is sort of used as the personal name of the Mothman or a Mothman in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really that was my first exposure to this story which really when you act when i did the research for tonight's episode is completely different than what's depicted in the film oh yeah Um, that that being said um the scene where indrid cold and richard gear have a conversation touching on the topic of chapstick was in my opinion one of the scariest slash funniest movies movie moments i've ever seen um in fact maybe we could uh play a little clip of that from the film right now for our listeners if that's all right yeah absolutely <laughs> we can what's my name um yeah that's i mean the movie i re- i remember seeing the movie many 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 years ago uh-huh um uh, and and long before i really was kind of researching um that you know, flap era, the 66, 67 flap. I hadn't read any John Keel mm. when I saw that movie. And, and I just remember it just being a really weird movie. Mm-hmm. You know, none of these characters really meant much to me. Um, and I really, I probably at some point should rewatch it given how much more I know. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but like, I mean, like we said last month, I, I think reading John Keel's uh, The Mothman Prophecies book is is far more entertaining mm, mm-hmm. um, because his, his writing style is really accessible. Um, you know, it is, he really paints a good picture. Now, admittedly, he does kind of maybe, you know, pass some... Uh, judgment visually mm. on women that doesn't fly as well today mm. as maybe it did then. It's like, look, we don't really need to know if you found this housewife hot or not. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, uh, but okay. He, he wrote it in the mid seventies about experiences he had in the late sixties. I mean, you kind of just go, okay, we wouldn't do that today. But this was a different time. You know, you look at it in the Mm. historical context and you move on. Mm. Um, Although, interestingly enough, yesterday, March 25th, was John Keel's birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Yep. No longer with us, but happy birthday to him nonetheless. Um, So, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, just to to circle back to your original question, um, in doing the, 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 the reading for tonight's episode, I mean, 
The story of Indrid Cold, basically for me, um, seems to fit a pretty typical pattern of mid-20th century American um, contactees. So mm -hmm. it seemed like you would have an instance where you'd have a otherwise seemingly normal American in the, maybe in the 1950s or the 1960s who would claim to have a personal one-on-one -on -one encounter and, re and or relationship with an extraterrestrial, usually one that looked completely human in appearance. Yeah. Um, maybe even, you know, took a took a voyage on their craft, um, engaged in some sort of long term communication with the subject via some form of either telepathy or maybe even something, you know, approaching like spirit writing that you might see back in like the, the, the era of like mediums and seances and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 also kind of you know presenting the 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 thesis they're, they're almost sort of like the human spokesperson for the extraterrestrial and um, a new era of intergalactic peace friendship and there's it's always generally a positive message that mm -hmm. the contactees are relating from the alleged extraterrestrials it seems and it yeah. seemed to me that Woody and Indrid really fit that pattern at least up until about 1994, which I don't want to spoil anything or jump ahead too far, but that's where, for me, it takes a complete left turn. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's and that's where I get excited because it seems like it's completely, it breaks that pattern. Because another thing is this this episode really reminded me great, a great deal of um, an, an earlier episode we did in the podcast on the topic of a, uh, a legend extraterrestrial named Valiant Thor, our, our fifth episode. Yeah. Um, you know, where it's, where it's the case where you have a, an extraterrestrial who looks very human, um, has, has a in, really interesting name and names are a big part of this too, that we'll get into to the yeah. next episode for sure. Yeah. Um, and who, you know, interacts with humans, but at the same time, uh, the government's basically allegedly trying to keep the lid on the fact that the extraterrestrials exist or are visiting, you know? Um, I mean, as to whether or not I believed or disbelieved, I mean, I think I was more interested in whether... Whether or not these this extraterrestrial species are like would be interesting to me or not mm, um, okay what, what was your take on this did you feel that it was a cash grab or did it really happen or what do you, you know i mean from and and i i mean i kind of learned about this tale kind of almost more from hellier first mm -hmm. and then read mothman prophecies and then read visitors from lanulos mm -hmm. links to which you know We'll have, you know, in the show notes, um, actually, you know what, I take that back. I actually, uh, it was Hellier first, then Secret Cipher, mm. uh, the Euphonauts, because Olaf gave me a copy of that long before Hellier even came out. Okay. So I was able to go back to that first, but that still really doesn't tell a lot of the story. It just goes, you know, I... I took these clues and I found this person, you know, and then I read Mothman Prophecies and then I read mm -hmm. Visitors from Lanulus. Um, and, you know, from, from what I was exposed to initially, um, it, it there isn't that element of sensationalism that I get from listening to Woody Derenberger talk. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I always... I like paying attention to what people say and how they say it. Um, especially, I mean, whether it's written or spoken, I mean, I'm, I'm an editor by trade. So I kind of like, I feel like I can look at how something is written and, and the language that is used and kind of um, critique it as to whether or not someone's just, you know, telling the facts of what happened and relating an experience or they kind of have more of an angle with it. Mm. Um, am I flawless? No, not by any means. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare purport that. Um, but the, the sense that I got 
definitely from the beginning um, of this experience. And, and we are, I think, unusually blessed in this case is that, you know, audio exists from a half hour long mm-hmm. interview mm-hmm. Um, that was originally done for live TV. Uh, I, I really wish the video was there because I would love to see mm. Woody's uh, expression and watch his body language and stuff. That mm-hmm. that all can be very telling. Um, but the audio exists. We will have a link to it, and we do have some clips from it to play. Um, but it literally was the next day. Yeah, That's- you know this this happens the evening of November second, and like the afternoon of November third, he's on TV talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is really amazing because this is about as close as we can get. You know, to to the actual moment of the experience mm-hmm. and 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 someone relating it mm-hmm. um and and that is fantastic because the more time goes by the more our memory kind of writes and rewrites things mm-hmm. and so the story inevitably changes i mean when when you and i were doing our our other podcast if memory serves it's amazing how much our memory of things has changed over time right mm-hmm. um so the fact that we have this audio, this record of what happened, um, is is fantastic. And listening to it, and I encourage everyone, we'll have a link in the show notes, um, listen to the full half-hour interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and Woody comes across incredibly calm. You know, he, he relates things, you know, very straightforward, in my opinion. I, I don't feel like he, he does a ton of speculation. Mm. He doesn't make any crazy claims. He's not like, oh, you know, they came down, they shot me with a beam. They were clearly from Venus mm. because they must be from Venus. I don't know why. Um, just picking on that planet. <clears throat> and so it's, um, it's really a great source of information. And I, I'd like to, um, right now, just, just play, you know, the first, first couple minutes mm. of this where he kind of relays the the initial encounter mr denberger in your own words would you please relate what happened last night well i was i am a salesman and i drive a truck and last night uh shortly after seven o'clock i was coming from marietta ohio coming down interstate 77 and just before i came to the intersection of uh about 47, there was a car past me, overtaking me from behind, and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object, and as the car ahead, or the car behind passed me, this object was following close behind it, and it swerved directly in front of my truck, turning crosswise, and when it turned crosswise, it slowed down. It started slowing not abruptly or too fast, but it gave me plenty of time to step on my brakes and slow down with it, but it forced me to come to a complete stop. As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck. And I'd done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he uh, he first asked me what I was called. And I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened. We wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And uh, 
I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. And he asked me what the city of Parkinsburg, he pointed to the lights. He didn't point, but he gave the impression that he was pointing, and he asked me what that was called. And I told him it was a Parkersburg, it was a city, a town, and he asked me if most all the people lived in my, this city or town. And I explained to him uh, that it was a place of business, it's where we transacted our business, that the people lived in communities, outlying communities, most of the people. And when I told him that this was a city, he said that his where his home was, that that was called a gathering. So yeah, it's mm. it's interesting. Um, just I mean, right off the bat, the level of detail that he's giving, mm-hmm. right? It's all still very fresh in his mind, which is fantastic, right? You know, it 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 passes him. It swerves, and I can see it. You know, it kind of swerves in front of him, rotates sideways, so it's it's blocking the highway now. Mm-hmm. So he's got to start slowing down and stopping, right? It pulls off to the side. Um, and, and they're, they're more or less like at a crossroad. He's on, I think, what was it? Route 77. Mm -hmm. And it was just about to cross over route 47. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, door opens in the craft out and he's even, he's like, it's like eight to 10 inches off the ground. Mm -hmm. Just hovering there. Right. Um, person comes out, you know, walks across his headlight to the right hand side of the vehicle. And even later in the interview, it's amazing because he's like, you know, I think I think one of the interviewers asks us, well, why do you think he came to the right hand side of the vehicle? Hmm. And he's like, well, I was halfway onto the berm. I was halfway onto like, you know, the side of the road. I don't think he wants to stand in traffic, basically, because the ship then lifts back up into the sky. Mm -hmm. So um, we've got this initial you know, interaction, um, this introduction, what are you called? Here's what I'm called. You know, what's that down there? Oh, that's Parkersburg. It's like, oh, that's, you know, on my planet, we would call that a gathering. Right. And he calls himself a searcher. At one yes. Point. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 They're talking about, about their, their, their jobs, right? Mm-hmm. you know, what is, what is a salesman and Indrid, although we don't have him introduces Indrid just cold. Yeah. Is, a uh is a searcher yeah exactly um it's interesting he always keeps his hands in his armpits and i thought that was because he was cold not that his name was cold so that was that was good to learn oh yeah and that is that and that is also another interesting just uh aspect Mm, mm -hmm. of it It, it's it i kind of liken it to um how in stuff like like the hopkinsville uh case People can't really recall like what their feet look like. Yeah, that that is a the theme that does pop up a lot. You know, That's some some aspect of them can't be seen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, so now we have you know he's standing there, kind of doing a, a Mary Catherine Gallagher arms tucked, <laughs> hands tucked into the armpits there. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe he literally is cold. It is it is early November. Um, but yeah. There is that interesting aspect of it. Um, so next, um, Woody talks about um, kind of where uh, where the where the door of the ship was in relation to everything, mm. um, and kind of a description of the ship. I thought it was kind of worth uh, talking about what what this uh, what this looks like and and even what it sounds like. Mm which I find uh, fascinating, but let's take a listen. 
back toward the right th no that's too far mr wilson back up front farther not here right there not in here approximately right there and the door it uh, it resembled just an ordinary automobile door when it opened. All right. Now, this, it, 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 it didn't open from a bottom hinge or a top hinge. It opened from a side hinge. It opened from the... We know opened. Yes, it opened from the side. How about, uh, would you, how was this gentleman, uh, how was this person dressed? Uh, what what well, type of clothing uh, did he wear? He had a top coat on, and it was zippered down the front. Uh, his top, uh, the top two buttons, like my coat here, were open, and he. This uh, outfit was a, a shiny material. It was a, a glossy outfit, uh, like it was metallic, I suppose you would call it. And his shirt was a little bit darker than his jacket. And below his coat, he had on trousers of uh, the same kind of a cloth material. And I believe the trousers were just a shade lighter than his coat. Which would have been a uh, navy blue. The coat yes. would have been a dark blue. Yes. Coat. Uh, what, about the, uh, what about the texture of his skin, the color of his skin, uh, his eyes, eyebrows, eyelashes, hairline? Uh, what, what were these? Uh, what did he look like? He looked perfectly natural and normal as any human being. He had... Uh, his face looked like he had a, a good tan, a deep sun tan. He was not too dark, but it was just like he had been out in the sun a lot and had a good tan. His hair was combed straight back, and it was a dark brown. And he, he seemed to have uh, a good thick head of hair. And his eyebrows, his face, uh, his features were no very normal. Uh. One of the things I find really interesting about, about this clip, I, there's a few things, quite honestly. Um, but the fact is that here is this almost, it, it's almost like a, the, the, the glass part of a hurricane lamp. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you pick it up and turn it horizontally, this is kind of how I think of the shape of the craft. Um, he describes the door that opened as an automobile door. And that, that's interesting. Mm. That's really interesting. And, and the interviewer even goes, he's like, so it didn't, you know, it didn't slide over. It didn't like, you know, hinge from the top or from the bottom. It, he's like, nope, it was, it was like an automobile door. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that just gets me wondering mm. in so many different ways. Like, you know, is it, was it even like, I don't know. I'm, I'm instantly going into like conspiracy mode. It's like, oh man, this is. This is some sort of like weird government mind control and they're making him see this. And, hmm. you know, at the same point, I'm also going, well, maybe it is kind of the same, like, you know, as as Keel talks about ultra terrestrials is that they, they come from this planet. You know, these these constructs to 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 use the term, um, <clears throat> they may not really be there. They may be influencing us to see them mm. yeah it's interesting i i thought it was interesting that he doesn't describe the craft as the um, generic <coughs> typical saucer shaped craft like i thought that was an interesting detail how he describes the shape of the craft um in terms of whether or not it, it really happened or not also it right. sounds like i mean from the later book that we'll talk about in a few minutes it sounds like there were actually people on the road who at least witnessed woody pulled over on the side of the road talking to a man mm-hmm you know, so um, so yeah, there may have been something going on. I think. Um, yeah, 
Um, and then I, I love, I, I have to, I mean, I give a lot of credit to the guy who is interviewing mm. Woody. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not ridiculing him. Oh, no. He's not, um, you know, being like, oh, did they did they have green skin? Did right. they, did they yeah. you know, talk in a funny language? Right, right. I mean, he literally is asking, because obviously he then goes in to be like, well, well, what did it look like? Mm-hmm. They were talking about height and weight and what he was wearing. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's like, Indrid's outfit was like, you know, half shiny metallic, but also just like a well-dressed suit. Right. Hair slicked you know? back. You know? Hair slicked back, you know, talking about like eyebrows and mm-hmm. eye color and just these details that you wouldn't necessarily think to ask. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But this interviewer thinks to ask it. And I and I really think it's just so smart of him to do so and so smart of him to to take Woody seriously and take this experience seriously. Um, but we also have that ability now with with all these other cases, with all this this other kind of like, you know, openness of like thinking across um, uh, interests between cryptids and the Fae and UFOs and, and everything in between that we can kind of see these connections. So here's here's this car door. Mm. And, I, and I, I realize I'm getting kind of hung up on it because it is it's one of those things where, you know, Keel says, hey, the phenomena, you know, you get crying babies and you get the sounds of doors closing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that when we eventually get to the discussion of his his book and the planet that they come from, there's mm-hmm. a lot that he describes this civilization. Um, there's a lot about this civilization that's advanced that you would expect from a quote unquote extraterrestrial civilization. Right. But there's also really mundane, like brick and mortar stuff. Like he talks about, you know, the steel factories that they have and, you know, yeah. how they, you know, how they get cleaned after working a shift at the steel plant or something. Yeah. Um, which is fascinating because it's like he's in West Virginia, you know, that's steel country. You know what I mean? So, it is steel country. It is coal country. Coal country, yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's definitely an element within the species of this extraterrestrials uh, that are that are very, you know, there's nuts and bolts. Never, n- nothing's just really like seamless or, you know, you know what I'm saying? I don't. It's yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. They, 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 there is a kind of 20th century analog. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Lanulos itself, right? Exactly. Um, and I and I that also is really interesting. It's not you know it's not some crazy you know slick you know everything smooth and organic. There's no transporters that will just magically right. Yeah, you know. right, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, they are, however, nudists. Yes, that is that is a huge part of their culture, which is interesting because uh, we had that one episode where you t- brought up a case of nude aliens who abducted Jimmy Hoffa. Right. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And, and, and other connections like that is obviously Criswell. Right. Right. Criswell talking about, oh, it's, it'll be the future and, and, you know, nudist colonies will take over the country. Um, and, and I mean, shoot, we could go all the way back to Jonathan Frakes, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about, uh, the, the Sierra sounds because, Honestly, Riker, he would love Lanulos. <laughs> well, you know, smart move on Indrid's part, putting on clothes before going to Earth. You know, just to like, you know, because, you know, him coming out of UFOs like disturbing enough. But him being nude, if, if he had come out <laughs> nude, yeah. you know, that would have just been maybe a bridge too far for these folks nope, in West I... Virginia. I agree. I think that's a fair point. Uh, it is. It's weird. Again, we're seeing 
these connections between these cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, what what it is what is it about nudism in the sixties <laughs> that became such a factor? Mm. You know? Um it's it's weird. It's mm -hmm. it's weird, weird stuff. Um, so I'm I'm trying to think of where to go next with this. Well, um, um, I mean, do you want to listen to some more audio clips? Or well, yeah. Why why don't we let's 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 keep running with the um, the idea of the door because um, ev eventually Andrew's like, hey, look, man, I got to get going. Mm -hmm. It was nice mentally chatting with you. Right. Um, so yeah, let's let's kind of hear what that that departure is uh is like when he was getting ready to leave he stepped back from the truck about one step then he said uh mr Dernberger, we will see you again he didn't say i he said we will see you again and uh when he got in the truck or when he got in the vehicle the door opened as he walked up to the vehicle and he stepped up into it and there was another man, or I couldn't describe this man because I could just see his outline, but I did see his arm and hand reach outside and take a hold of the door and pull the door closed. And when the door closed, it made an audible noise like you'd shut the, a door on a big heavy automobile. It, I, I love the way he says, automobile. <laughs> um, bless bless the West Virginian accent. I, and, and you know, the simple fact that they just speak slower mm. Mm. over there. I, I remember a story our mom telling us about being at work and on the phone with somebody in Alabama and she was trying to get information and she's like, like honey, 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 you got to slow down. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yeah, that is that is true. It is just a slower pace, uh, you know, outside the Bay Area. Um, but anyway, back to this. It It is, I find it, I find a couple things interesting. Okay. Um, you know, one thing is the the specificity with which uh, Woody notes what Indrid says in terms of we will see you again. Mm -hmm. um, not I will see you again, we. So, you know, it's, it's almost as though Indrid knows something further down the road, like, you know, Woody will meet other people in his crew, mm. other people from Lanulos. We don't know. We don't know at this point. Um, and then I realized that this was a slip of the tongue um, because I think Woody's thinking of his own truck. Mm. But he goes, oh, when he got in the truck, I, when he got in the ship, mm. Mm. And, and, and there's that part of me, you know, thinking that, okay, maybe they're projecting this image of the ship into his head. Mm. Um, and because the door opened like the door of a car. Right, right. This is this, the second this... time he's described the ship with a automobile reference. You know? Correct, it's... yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and he talks about seeing somebody else's arm come across to grab the door mm. once Woody has stepped, or I'm sorry, once um, Indrid has stepped in mm -hmm. and pulls the door closed. Um, and he says that it, it just, it sounded like the door just of a heavy car shutting. Right. Which again, Boom! There's there's our Keelian reference mm. of of car door slam, um, and so I'm I'm again I'm I'm only critical of this and not in a bad way of it because it literally is the next day, mm, right? It's that next day interview, and we're we're trying to make sense of of what he experienced, um, and and I have to wonder, you know, again, were they projecting something into his head? Was it? an actual craft, you know, 
just what was it you know um but it did it did make a sound and getting back to your whole thing about you know is woody truthful does he did it really happen or if it didn't happen does he think it's happened or is he just making it up to get rich i mean going back to that question one of the really interesting things is pretty much if i understand correctly after the news flap his his home, his where his home where his family, his wife and his children live, mm-hmm. becomes basically a madhouse. All the oh, public are like invading his land to like try to meet him or see aliens. Yes, and apparently it gets so bad at one point that his marriage breaks up. So, I mean, from the point of view is of is is he a con man? I kind of find that really hard to believe because it sounds like if anything, his life got worse rather than better by him coming public with all of this knowledge. No. I, I do too, and I wholeheartedly agree. They you know they end up having to move away, mm-hmm. um, very much like Hopkinsville. Right, exactly. Right, it, the 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 where they live becomes kind of a circus. And yet, and he's, it, oh, good. No, it just puts undue stress on the family. Right, and and yet Woody is still feels compelled in part because he continues to report encounters and meetings with Indrid and his his fellow extraterrestrials. He feels compelled to continue giving this message and. And in that way, Woody starts to look more and more like, you know, some of the figures we find like in the Hebrew Bible, people who, you know, like prophets, people who feel that they've received a message from a higher power. Mm -hmm. Even though that message might be unpopular or at least that message, giving that message is going to be something that causes um, personal, you know, negative things to happen amongst his community. They still feel the the urge to, you know, spread that word. So, you know what I mean? Right. Right, and and that is something we get across a, a lot of contact key cases, right, uh, from this era especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but but related to this, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the interviewer asks, you know, do do you believe in UFO? Mm-hmm. And 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 here's here's what Woody says: Do you believe in flying saucers? I have never have believed in flying saucers before. I I have heard about them a few times. I've even read in the paper about flying objects, but I honestly never did believe in it. Do you believe in them now? I believe in what I seen last night. I believe it was, I don't believe it was a saucer, but I believe it was an alien, some kind of an aircraft, a spacecraft or something. And I like, I like that, you know, he, he doesn't go like all out. He's not like I'm a complete convert. He's like, I, I believe what I saw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, he's yeah. I mean, just listening to him through this interview, I I really kind of come to feel that you know he <clears throat> he's being truthful in what he experienced, mm. um, and he's also smart enough to go look. This is what I experienced. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't really vouch for anything outside of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, Betty and Barney Hill couldn't tell you what that you know he doesn't actually you know mm. talk about any other contactee cases but he's he's focused on his experience and and what he believes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with respect to that um and that i mean that feels really truthful i feel like a mm. lot of people um you know who have more of an angle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like i feel like frank strange has had an angle mm, okay um I, I feel like a lot of, you know, more recent, like late 70s, 80s contact people, they had an angle. Mm. Not all of them, but some of them definitely. And, you know, it, it's, he's not like, oh yeah, I've had this experience and now, now I'm going to go write a book about it. Mm-hmm. He does eventually. Mm-hmm. 
you know, visitors from Lanulos comes out in 71. Um, but he at least is like, well, you know, if I do see him again, at least I won't be as afraid. And I'll at least have, you know, the wherewithal to think to ask more questions. Right, right. You and know? I, I find it really interesting that this encounter occurs very close both in space and time to um, the whole Mothman experience, which, I mean, we've heard earlier in the show how, you know, um, Indrid Cold is a name used in the 2000 film The Mothman Prophecies. Right. And, of course, because Woody's encounter is happening so close in time and place to the Mothman stuff, it gets kind of incorporated into John Keel's book, which is sort of kind of how that kind of flows into that um, story as well. Yeah, because it is, I believe, November 15th, mm-hmm. not even two weeks later, right. um, that uh, the Scarberries and the Mallets have their encounter with Mothman down at the TNT area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that kind of kicks off that whole, that whole flap. Right, right. Um, so I just, let me play one more sound and, and then we'll kind of like start diving into deeper stuff. Okay. Um, we actually, uh, the interviewer, um, and I, I feel bad because I can't remember his name right now, um, does ask, what did the UFO sound like? Mm. Um, and, and we get Woody kind of comparing it and, and trying to imitate it. Um, but it's still being not quite like anything he's ever heard before. Let, let, let's give that a quick listen. Yeah. I couldn't distinguish no difference in the sound. It was a low fluttering noise. It, uh, well, if you've ever heard the blades of a helicopter as it was idling, setting on the ground, that would be the closest way that I can describe the noise it made, but it was not very, very loud. Can you, can you make a noise that it sounded well, like? Well, uh, it, sa- it was a fluttering noise. It sounded something like... But, but it's a sound you have never heard before. I had never heard anything like it before in my life. So there, there we go. So again, interesting that he compares it to a helicopter. Right. So again, here's this going, okay, is it, is it, and they're just projecting it. You know, I keep coming back to that. And I, again, I, I've, I've really nothing to base it on. I'm just kind of giving you a, an insight to kind of where my brain is going with this. Yeah. Um, and then, and then he does a pretty good impersonation. I'm not going to try to recreate it. I'll probably start into a coughing fit here. <laughs> um, but again, it's, it wasn't quite like anything he'd ever heard before. Mm, okay. Um, and that for the most part kind of rounds out this interview. Again, mm. I wholly recommend if you've never listened to it, go hit the show notes, go listen to the whole thing. It's, it's a very fascinating, uh, interview. Mm. So, um, this isn't Woody's only encounter with injured cold. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes on in 1971 to write a book with a guy named Harold W. Hubbard. 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 Can, can I just say, I, I, a couple of days ago you said, Hey, can you figure out what the story is behind this Hubbard guy? Yeah. I and was I, having trouble finding info on him. Yeah. I was like, sure. No problem. I, it took, it took me surprisingly long to find out anything. And, and what I did find out was so thin and so, I'm not even sure if it's accurate. I was so surprised. I thought it was going to be so much. Um, The only thing I found was a brief quote. It says, UFOlogist Harold Hubbard, director of a local UFO discussion group that met during the evenings on the third Saturday of each month in a pancake house off Route 2 in Sebring, Ohio. Um, And I'm pretty sure it was called the Tri-County UFO Study Group, which if Facebook's to be be believed, they still are actually in existence and operating, which I thought was kind of neat. More importantly, is the pancake house 
still there in Seabrand. <laughs> I know that was that was so so presumably Hubbard and um, Derenberger get together at some point and figure out, hey, we should write a book about this whole thing. Yeah, and and I really wish we had that part of the story. Oh yeah, um, I would like to know more about Hubbard um, because there are parts again reading visitors from Lanulos there are there are parts of the book where I'm like this doesn't feel like Woody's voice oh yeah this feels like like some ufologist is being preachy about you know disclosure and oh the government wants to hide these things and and I'm like this doesn't feel mm. So I, I, I personally believe, though I have nothing to fully back that up, is that there are a couple parts of that book where Hubbard injected his own voice and his, mm. um, you know, his talking point. I think, I think Keel may have written the introduction to the 71 book. And in the version that I looked at, there's a part where Keel <clears throat> says... Um, Let's see, I've got it right here. Yeah, he did write the foreword. The foreword, thank you. There's a there's a part in the foreword I think that Keel says Hubbard actually held back some of the more um, unusual parts of the story from the book, and Hub and and Keel says it's a shame we've never been able to find that part of the manuscript. And it's interesting because one of the things I did find, I'm pretty sure I found the obituary for Hubbard's widow. And oh. It lists all of his like kids and grandkids, so maybe they have a garage somewhere with all of this uh, paperwork in it or something. You know? Oh, that that would be nice, but I would be I would be <laughs> surprised if it still exists. It's probably at the pancake house somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um. Anyway. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, the Facebook group, I might just toss that in the show links or in the show notes too. Um, the Facebook group for this Tri-County UFO study group, um, they have their motto, uh, up there on, on, on the page. And of course it's all in caps. Um, and it says ridicule without investigation is like a crown of ignorance <laughs> upon the head of a fool. And that sounds just so like not pretentious at all right um and i'm like oh boy and then i go well you know what let's throw this into the secret cipher and we're gonna be talking a lot about ciphers later on the tonight show i think we will and then and then we will have an episode that delves uh into it a lot more okay um but base long story short the secret cipher of the euphonauts is a um a way to um take a thelemic text um and basically uh each each letter of the alphabet gets a different numerical value but it's every i think it's every 11th letter okay um and so it goes around and around and around the alphabet until every um every letter has a numerical value Mm -hmm. and so the nice thing that we have today is we have websites where we can put in a phrase or a word and it will do all the math for us. Right. So I think it, I think this is, I think it's called arithmancy. I think there's a word for this. It's like, like you said, you take each letter, it has a number, you add up the numbers, you get a sum, and then there's other words or phrases that might have the same sum, and then there's maybe a mystical connection between those words or those phrases. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. And and the only real thing that I feel like I can add to that, you know, if you decide to go to one of these sites and go, okay... I'm going to put my name in. Or yeah, I'm have you put... ever done that? Have you ever put your name in? Um, I feel like I did at one point, and I don't remember oh, okay. any of the hits or what the value was. Mm. 
But anyway, um, is there's going to be a lot of stuff that might be like, I have no real sense of, you know, any sort of meaning from some of these. But there might be some where it's like, ooh, that's kind of interesting. You kind of have to trust your gut. Mm. On some level, there's there's this like synchronicities. It they will there will be a personal meaning. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, to you. Um, so I threw this motto just for kicks. Mm-hmm. I'm like, let's just throw it in the cipher. It has a value of 922. Um, and there were, there were a couple uh, phrases that came back that I thought kind of like maybe would fit with this. And, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. One of them is, let there be no difference made among you between any one thing and any other. Whoa. Oh no! It sounds probably sounds more important than it is. Um, another uh, another hit is adore the might of thy breath supreme and terrible God who makest the gods and death. That just sounds spooky. Um, now here's an interesting one because you know we we're making the connection between the motto of this group to the group to the fact that we believe Hubbard was part of this group hmm. and that he helped Woody write this book. Right. right. So here's the next one. And thy comment upon this, the book of the law, mm. shall be printed beautifully. And oh, now granted, the book of the law is the Thelemic text okay. that we're we're pulling these codes from. So that's I'm not trying to say that visitors from Lantilos is is the book of the law, but just we we get that book connection. Mm. Um, and then this last one uh, is chosen ones obey my prophet, follow out the ordeals of my knowledge, seek me only then mm. and maybe i just make them sound spookier than they really are <laughs> there there are some definitely some more interesting uh cipher values the the more we get into this um so one of the things that i i kind of tried to work up like our uh-huh. three main texts for this episode yeah. are mothman prophecies visitors from lanulos and the secret cipher of the euphonauts right. links to all of those in the show notes um so i tried my best to um come up with kind of a timeline yeah for this this greater um this greater mystery into which woody derenberger meeting indrid cold kind of fits right so um just to to lay out the beginning at the beginning of this um we've got woody meeting indrid mm-hmm. early november um we have the beginning of the Mothman flap a couple weeks later. That stretches to about Christmas of 67. Okay. Right? Then you get, um, there are interviews in the Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts between Alan Greenfield and Terry Rist. And Greenfield's the author of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. Correct. Right? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, Terry Rist, whether you think he's a real person, whether he's not, whatever, he has kind of taken a look at the Mothman flap, mm-hmm. at Indrid Cold, in terms of cipher value, right? Um, and and as has made some actions accordingly, if we're to take this at its word, which is really all we can do, right? So, in terms of timeline, kind of pulling from all of these texts, let me grab a sip of water real quick. In the early 1960s, Terry Rist claims to meet Richard Shaver. Now, uh, we I feel like we have talked about the Shaver mystery. Um, uh, just the, the quick and dirty on that. Richard Shaver wrote, um, stories for, um, I believe it was, I believe it was Amazing Stories and, and then maybe Fate Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and he 
claimed to have experiences while working in, I think it was a machine shop, mm. um, in the 40, if memory serves correctly, um, in which something with the harmonics in where he was working, he could hear people underground. Yeah, he started hearing voices. Yeah. Right. He start. yeah, literally, I mean, if you want to look at it just like, you know, psychologically, he started hearing voices. Right. <laughs> Let's treat that the way that it should be in some ways. Um, and so he came to believe that there was this vast underground culture. Um, and this vast underground culture referred to as the Darrows, mm-hmm. um, or let's see, what is that short for? Detrimental robots. Yeah, but they're not really robots. They're flesh and blood creatures. Yeah. They're, they're almost robots in the sense that they're like slaves to their passion or something. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's that's a very good way of putting it. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, they They kind of, what, delight in causing humanity misery. Right. Um, and then the obviously every every darkness need needs a light. So there is the the tarot's, uh-huh. you know, who are kind of like you know the enlightened robots. I forget what the tarot uh, or the you know the T E R. It's like in, prefix. In, interrogated or, or integrated or something. Maybe like that. maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I all this other research and I'm like, man, I should have put more shaver stuff <laughs> in here. I, anyway, um, so um, these stories get published right um um ray palmer publishes these stories um and and they go off like gangbusters and all of a sudden there are people writing in yeah being like oh my gosh i remember being part of lemuria which is which is this this culture uh this civilization's name and there's you know at various entrances to this this uh inner earth around the world you know some of it purportedly up in mount shasta uh, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and Alan Greenfield was very into uh, the Shaver mystery, had a lot of uh, content and research right. um, on all of that. So, so early 1960s, Terry Riss claims to meet Richard Shaver yeah. uh, and gets introduced to this idea of inner earth stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. November 2nd, 66, Woody and Indrid meet for the first time, mm-hmm. right? The next day, Woody goes on TV, right? We just kind of covered all of that. Right. Um, Twelve days later, Mothman Flap kicks off in earnest. There actually was a sighting just before that um, with some uh, workers, I believe, in a junkyard. Um, but it, the Mothman Flap kicks off in earnest at the TNT area. Um, uh, John and Linda Scarberry... Uh, and their friends, the Millettes, they were out for a cruise, having some alone time, and they get, you know, spooked by the Mothman, and basically, you know, their claims of doing, you know, 100 miles an hour uh, in their, I think it was a 57 Chevy Bel Air, um, and, and, and Mothman keeping pace with them. So, you know... All of this is going on. There's multiple sightings. I mean, one of the things I love about the Mothman prophecies, and we're going to dive a lot deeper into that next month. Yeah, it's almost going to be like a part two to this episode. Very much so. Very yeah. much so. So I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about it. Mm. But there's a lot of weirdness happening uh, happening in this kind of like Ohio, West Virginia, Point Pleasant area. I mean, we're talking Men in Black. We're talking uh, weird phone calls. Obviously, we're talking John Keel. We're talking Mothman sightings. There's a whole just, like, I almost think that Flap is too 
too small a word. I mean, it is a legit happening right. going on. Um, but that's for another episode. Um, early in December of 1966, um, and this is from visitors from Lanulos, uh, Woody Derenberger submits to an EEG test. Yeah. Right? So they check his brain activity at the behest of NICAP. Right, the UFO Investigation Organization. Right, yeah. Um, and the very funny thing, again, just for kicks, I threw NICAP into the secret cipher. Right. has a value of 77, and one of the hits that really jumped out at me and made me laugh are fools. Mm. So whether, whether you feel strongly about NICAP or not, the cipher seems to think they're fools. Um, but anyway, um, so, so Keel uh, claims that NICAP went on to claim that Woody's experience was a hoax. Yeah, I get the feeling from Keel's writings that Nightcap is sort of like the bad guys in all of this. Like, they're actually actively trying to almost put a lid on UFO stories, and they're telling people not to talk to anybody about your UFO experience. And it's interesting because... In reality, NICAP, some of the earliest um, people who were, like, involved in the organization, people who were the founding fathers of it, were people mm -hmm. who were, like, they're like Hillen Cotter, the first director of the Central Intelligence Agency and all this stuff. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a verifiable fact. That's not, like, some sort of, like, I mean, I think you can actually look at the early NICAP documents and it's, like, you know, board of directors and it's, like, all these admirals and people that were involved in, like, the OSS and stuff, which is, like... Yeah. I mean, aside from all of this cipher stuff... And everything that's just a really that was something even as a kid that stuck in my craw and i thought was really weird but no I, I i completely agree and i i mean i don't know if it may maybe just simply boils down to you know i, I think there are there are and there have been some ufologists who want to be like i'm the one who's going to find the truth i'm going to be the one right and they want to have that prestige of being the disclosure person mm -hmm. um and i and i think some groups you know may have been like you know well we have the information yeah, not these other ones and so they might be trying to be like you know if they see something that goes against what what they've already against their confirmation bias. yeah uh, you know that they might be trying to tamp stuff down because it doesn't fit with their paradigm. Possibly. I mean, as a kid, I always thought, okay, the first director of the CIA is the, one of the board of the directors of a UFO investigation organization. My first reaction as a nine-year-old was, okay, they are trying, they are making an organization that's pretending to be a UFO mm -hmm. investigation organization, but what mm -hmm. they really want to do is either um, tamp down the truth or try to spin sightings of classified vehicles like U-2 spycraft as UFOs. But then I thought, as I grew older, it's like, okay, if that was true, you probably wouldn't want to put, like, Hillencotter's name on the letterhead. So maybe, then I thought, well, maybe it's a small organization that makes a certificate saying, I appoint Hill and Cotter to be the board of directors, and they mail it to him, and he gets in the mail, and he's like, never heard of these people, but nonetheless, <laughs> they put his name on the letterhead so that they feel more big about themselves. Right. Anyway, I digress. Back to the <laughs> Yeah. So um, it, one of the things that Keel claims is that, and I, and I don't have a copy of this. I haven't seen this for sure, but he claims that um, NICAP went on to uh, misspell both Derenberger's and Indrid Cold's names in their report. Mm. Now that doesn't, it's like, okay, it's a typo, you know, or maybe they were just like, eh, it's a hoax, whatever, you know, fat fingers. Um, but obviously Cold, we know is C-O-L-D, mm -hmm. he claims that NICAP spelled it K-U-L-D. Okay. Okay. So I'm like, okay, 
I know how Keel feels about weird names. I know, you know, there's 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 talk of power names from uh, Rebirth of Pan, mm. um, which I've got a, I've got a PDF copy, so I'm sitting there like reading through uh, kind of what the author says about that. So okay, let's go back to the cipher. I throw cold C O L D in, and one of the hits that comes back is holy. Okay. Okay. I throw cold K U L D. In one of the hits that comes back is fool. Mm, holy fool. Right. Um, well, no, a holy versus fool. Oh. Is because we're not saying cold, cold. We're comparing the two. Mm. Right? So we're looking at NICAP, right? Who one of their hits comes back is our fools. And and if it is true oh. that they misspelled Indrid Cold's last name in their report as cold, mm. and cold equals fool, mm-hmm. you know, I, I my gut says we're on to something here. Right, right. Right? And and maybe it is that Nightcap is intentionally trying to tamp down the veracity of this experience. Okay. Okay? So just run with it, you yeah, know? Yeah, right, right. Listening at home, if you're just going like, maybe, I guess, yeah, sure, Taylor, whatever, that's fine, right? It's important to me, and my gut is saying this. Sure, if your yeah. gut's not saying let's follow, it, you Let's know, follow your gut. Let's follow yeah. your gut. So, 1971, Woody publishes Visitors from Lanulus with the help of Harold Hubbard. We talked about Hubbard. 1974, okay, um, is when, according to the secret cipher of the Euphonauts, that the cipher of classical English Kabbalah is cracked, mm. right? They finally figure it out. It uses Aleister Crowley's Liber Al as source material. Now, again, we're going to get deeper into that in a few months. Okay, so stay tuned on that. Yeah, so I'm just, like I said, I'm just I'm laying out a timeline here of events. 1974, this is when people start to go, oh, let's take this word, let's take that word, let's take this phrase, let's do this math, and let's start making these connections. Mm-hmm. So 1975, Mothman Prophecies is published. Right. Um, so here we get talk about, oh, you know, Wednesday is the day where, you know, we get the most UFO sightings and, you know, hear these odd sounds uh, that are reported with the phenomena. Mm-hmm. I thought at this point when I was throwing the notes together, I thought that Keel was talking about power names like Parson and Fay, Fayetteville, stuff like that. Um, but no, I realized that was Rebirth of Pan. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, interesting that in Visitors from Lanulos, um, an old... Uh, Parkersburg police chief uh, comes back to town whose last name is Parson, mm. which is one of these power names, um, and invites him down because he's now he's now the uh, police chief in oh I forget which county um, Cape Canaveral is in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, Florida. when he goes to Florida and NASA yeah. supposedly interviews them. And they're they're like, yeah, this is all real, but you shut up about it or something like that. Basically, yeah. So, and I'm trying to find the spot because I my copy of um, Visitors is now all marked up with notes. Um, <clears throat> getting yeah, he, past keep, this. he keeps referring to the head of NASA as Charlie, just simply like a one name Charlie. Yes. Okay. So yeah, let's let's talk about that for a second because you know here is this this guy who is you know he's got a power name, and I went. I actually have found his entry on the Parkersburg. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Just a listing. Here's, here's all the people who have been, um, who have been police chief. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, his name, his name was right there. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, goes down, uh, claims to talk to the head of NASA. Yeah. Um, now the head of NASA at the time was not named Charlie. Oh, interesting. Uh, more than likely could not possibly have had a nickname mm. of Charlie. Yeah. So where this name comes from, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and so, yeah, that that I'm not too sure about. But it is interesting that we, we kind of get some of these power names in. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the timeline here, um, now we're talking 1980s. And mm-hmm. Terry Rist claims that he's off on his own and he's studying magic when Greenfield introduces him to the cipher. Right. Right. And so Wrist figures, hey, I'm going to start trying to use this uh, cipher to intercept abduction cases. Yeah, that was really interesting. It's like, hey, let's use the cipher to mystically figure out when before an alien shows up to abduct, abduct someone, like figure out when and where it's going to happen and like beat them off the pass or whatever, you know? Right. And and there is talk and there's definitely the belief that you can use the cipher to figure out potentially a place in time where if nothing else a sighting may happen right so he starts right off the bat applying the cipher method to west virginia cases yep so now here he's making this connection with indrid cold with mothman with with point pleasant and all of that so in the late 80s he claimed that he used the cipher and some information that he leaves out right so he's got his own i don't know secret spice that we don't get the formula to yep to find Indrid Cold. Right, right. And and very possibly in the town of Ashland, Kentucky. And that's sort of why there's basically three homework books for tonight's episode. There's, <laughs> there's the book that Woody wrote about his experience in this alien. There's the book that John Keel wrote about the Mothman Prophet, which mentions it. And this secret cipher book is in there as well because... If you, if you take the secret cipher book and you believe it literally, somebody has used the secret cipher to figure out where in the United States of America in the 1980s, Indrid Cold was living in basically like a shack, if I understand. It's kind of what it sounds like, yeah. And and I want to let you finish your thought, but then I really want to get, I want to jump in, grab the mic too, but let me, let yeah, you, oh, I'm going to let you. No, no, no. Uh, we're, we're basically... We're basically there. Like the the interviews that that Greenfield conducts with Terry Rist don't happen until 1994. Right. Um, so that's when the book comes out. That's yes. June and September are when Greenfield does these interviews. Um, and of course, those of you who are familiar with the cipher and the name Terry R. Rist, um, it equals 192, <clears throat> which you could do as one plus 92 or 93, which is a big number. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Thelemites, but 192 also equals secret master. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, and interestingly, in, I think, his first interview, um, Greenfield goes, hey, so are you are you a secret master? Uh, and, and Terry Rist goes, that would be telling. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I feel that would be telling is also something that we hear in the British science fiction show uh, The Prisoner. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting because Greenfield and maybe to an extent Keel as well, because they have this kind of mystical angle on all mm-hmm. these UFO reports and they don't necessarily believe that it's just always simply nuts and bolts aliens from another planet. Yeah. They're, it seems like they're, they, were really fo- they would really focus on cases with funny-sounding names involved. Yes. Because they thought that that was almost like the clue that what was being related may have been an experience that wasn't always a nuts and bolts UFO, but that there was some sort of mystical, um, <coughs> supernatural thing going on. Which I think, when you look at the case of Injured Cold, as I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, we get 
wacky names up the wazoo in that we incident. do and some of them have some very interesting cipher hits that i've done the math on okay. um but but yeah it, it, it is is almost as though they are incantation yes right these unusual words um so so last thing i'll say before i drop the mic and let you take over okay um so worth noting right now that um seek the the secret cipher of the euphonauts right the mm-hmm. very first edition of that uh, is published in late 94. Uh, Greenfield would later go on to write a book called Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, uh-huh. which obviously kind of ties to our Men in Black story or episode. Now, he didn't publish that till 2005. Um, later, um, and this is the the edition that you can find now, um, it's, it's actually, it's called The Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. It's both books merged oh, okay. into a single uh, uh text and was re-released in 2016 so more than likely if you go hop on amazon or something to find it you're going to have both books together so you won't have to be trying to find two books it's the easiest way to do it all right mic drop seb hit us hit us hit us with some rhymes okay so i feel like we've we've uh if any of our listeners are still out there listening i feel like we're at a point now where we've 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 given you a deluge of information it almost feels like at this point there's a big wall with all these post-it notes and bits of string tied between them making connections oh yeah i'm gonna hit the rewind button a little bit i'm gonna go back to the part of the story in 71 where the book visitors from lanulos comes out because um one of the things that i'm um really interested in is you know, I'm not so much interested in whether or not this extraterrestrial named Indrid Cold really exists. I'm more interested in whether or not he and his species are interesting or not. And I'll be honest with you. <laughs> it's kind like, of subjective. I really enjoyed the book, but the more I learned about Indrid and his planet and his culture, the more obscenely bourgeois they seemed to me. <laughs> Now, let me, let me break this down. First of all, we got the planet Lanulos. An mm-hmm. interesting name, Lanulos. I know that Kiel goes on later to talk about whether or not that's some sort of pun for something like land you lost or land you lust, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, the, okay, so the first thing about Lanulos is it's located in a constellation called Ganymede, according to Derenberger. Although at one point he calls it a galaxy called Ganymede. Um, the weird thing is there's actually no galaxy or constellation named that. There's actually a moon around Jupiter called Ganymede, which is right. kind of weird. Um, but anyway, uh, the planet Lanulos is, as we've mentioned earlier, inhabited by a species of extraterrestrials who are, for the most part, nudists and have a penchant for playing tennis. Very peaceful society. A society without religious um, divisions of any sort. Everybody kind of lives in harmony. Um Indrid Cold, we find out, has a wife named Kimmy, yep. two sons named Connor and Conrad. He has a best friend named Paul no, Arden. Hold on, hold on. Oh, not, oh. not Conrad. Conrad. No, okay. Not Conrad. Conard. Conard. Okay, Conard. So, excuse me, Conard. Not Conard. Connor and Conard. I, I, st- I, st- I, st- I stand corrected. Sorry, <laughs> it's, 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 an easy, like, it's an easy transposition of letters. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because at one point, Woody relates that he eventually... Uh, travels to this planet with mm-hmm. with Indrid on their spaceship. Um, they go around. They go to like a shopping mall. Um, the people on Lanulos kind of get freaked out because you know Woody's wearing clothing and that's mm-hmm. kind of weird. So they obviously <laughs> know there's something up with him. So at one point there's this weird confrontation where Indrid's like, "You should really get naked," and Woody's sort of <laughs> like, "I don't know if I want to get naked." So that that was definitely a part of the story that really piqued my interest. You know. Um, one of the fascinating things, um, if we take, I mean, it's kind of funny because I, I'm sort of like 
focusing on this part of the story as kind of like the down-to-earth version of the mystical stuff you're bringing in. But mm-hmm. even this stuff is, I mean, obviously it's bizarre because it's somebody traveling to another planet, if taken literally. But um, according to this book um, that came out in 1971, the people that live on the planet Lanulos, if I understand correctly, are actually originally the descendants of humans from Earth from well in the past when humans apparently on very distant Earth had a high technology, traveled across the universe to this planet, crash landed, couldn't fix their ship, kind of became farmers. And um, decided to get naked. Decided to get naked, figured out how to <laughs> use telepathy and ESP, which I think played into the whole fact that that's part of the reason why their species is so peaceful, because they have telepathy. Mm-hmm. Um, Woody Derenberger goes on to describe how he finds at least one other um, human being on Earth who has had these contacts who also develops telepathy and they have been able to get with each other um on earth um and and ultimately you know indrid has a very kind of peaceful almost boring middle class life um but the part of the story there's two things that really jumped out for me that grabbed my attention the first is that woody and indrid actually do spend some time talking about a different species of extraterrestrials yes that are not from lanulos and they're not really good guys at all no these are the guys that i got excited about um they have a weird their species is they're they're called humanoids Mm -hmm. which i thought was weird because usually when i think of the word humanoid i'm thinking of a a descriptive term to describe what the extraterrestrial looks like they look like us you know but yep. in this case the species are called humanoids i feel like they 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 also could have a punk band called the humanoids you could also have <clears throat> a punk band called the humanoids um they um they're not very nice they sort of look like humans except they have really bad hair and here's where i here's here's what sold me they fly around in pink spaceships and they rob people blind yep <laughs> um that was great um, some of the other things that made me, uh, I mean, another thing that's really interesting was whenever Valiant Thor, or Valiant, like, <laughs> whenever Indrid Cold or his friends come to Earth, a lot of times they'll, once they're on Earth, they will travel around in regular automobiles to yes. not arouse suspicion. And they love driving Volkswagens, which Yay. is, for, for me, one of the things that made me think maybe this is why you're so interested in this, because I can't think of any two things you like more uh, in terms of hobbies than the paranormal and Volkswagens, you know? So this That's, is like an intersection for you. you know? I, I have to say it was uh, it was reading the Mothman prophecies where Keel kind of talks about, you know, I always think men in black, you think, you know, big old Cadillacs mm-hmm. or Chevys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. But, they, they, you know, apparently the Lanulosians are very much more economical in their choice of transportation. Well, yeah, like, yeah. And and I, I I so so yeah so getting to um, getting to visitors and reading that that uh, Clinell or Clinell however mm. you pronounce it would come pulling up in a blue beetle yeah right I was just like okay this is cool I like yeah. these guys yeah totally <laughs> well you know I'm glad you did because you know there was the one thing that basically stuck the knife in the back for this species of la- people from lanulos for me was according to the 71 book on their planet they are not allowed to eat either pork or chocolate and yeah. for me that was like okay i'm i'm done with this species you know if they exist or don't exist that's fine i i can't live on a planet without chocolate and bacon you know so. I, I'll, I'll be honest I, i'll i'd be happy to visit 
<laughs> but I don't think I'd move there. <laughs> but 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 getting back to um, the, the the secret ciphers of the Euphonauts mm-hmm. and Greenfield, like the, the 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 thing for me is like Indrid Cold. Okay, he sounds like so many other contact T stories that we've heard about over. You know, the part of this, and 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 in, even to the extent that if you look at someone like Valiant Thor, you have a, a, a character, real or not, an extraterrestrial who. Years after the first initial contact, other human beings, other people, other Americans are writing books claiming to be written by that person. So it's almost like their banner gets taken up by other authors. Mm -hmm. For me, Indrid Cold, that happened too with Greenfield in the sense that he becomes, he shows up in another book by another author, you know, in Mm -hmm. 94. But for me, the part that got really interesting is it takes a complete left turn where all of a sudden in 94... If you take all of these books literally and at face value, Andrew Cole has gone from living on a distant planet with high technology to basically being a refugee on Earth living in a shack on, like, the Ohio-West Virginia-Kentucky border, basically. And he's basically hiding out because there's a beef between him and his species and the gray alien that we know and love. Right, yeah. So it it injecting... Uh, wrists, you know, uh, info yeah. into this tale. Um, it it does get a bit more sensational. It definitely gets a bit weirder. Um, so yeah, Terry Wrist is like, yeah, injured cold is hiding out. Like the whole Mothman flap was basically a giant distress call, mm-hmm. right? Um, that failed, and so he's he's still stuck here. Um, and he and he and he's trying to get in. I should grab the book from behind me here but he's trying to get in touch with the third order and that's interesting because in in greenfield or terry wrist's account indrid cold i guess at least visually has the appearance of like an african-american gentleman mm-hmm. whereas in 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 woody derenberger's 1971 book indrid cold i guess just has kind of like a dark olive complexion maybe. yeah yeah so that's that was kind of interesting i thought um but but for, for, for me, here's the thing. I love all this crap. I love paranormal stuff. I love all these books and all these documentaries. Like, I love all this crap. But I'll, I'll be honest. I've never, I've never gone out and investigated an allegedly haunted house. I've never gone on a Bigfoot ex- expedition into a national forest. But in 2019, mm-hmm. you send me an email. Yep. And, and you basically say, hey, Seth, can you help me out with a research project? And, and you tell me... You. This is before I've ever heard of Terry Wrist. This is before I've ever heard of Greenfield. And you basically say, hey, listen, there's this book, and supposedly there's this guy, and he's living on the border somewhere around West Virginia or Ohio and, and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can, using your like library school experience and research skills, help me figure out what it. Specifically, you say you're looking for, quote, a restaurant called The Wagon Wheel near Highway 50, maybe Old Highway 50, near the Ohio-Kentucky-West Virginia border, which is where Indrid was supposed to be living. And for the next couple of days, I was going out and like looking at stuff and, on the internet, and I can't tell you how much fun that was. Ah, like, good. That was like my version of like actually getting my feet wet into a, like a paranormal experience and trying mm-hmm. to do some research. I mean, granted, I didn't actually find any locations that married up with where he really supposedly was living. But nonetheless, I had so much fun doing that. I can't tell you how excited I was. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I'm glad. <clears throat> Something I found interesting because if if I remember correctly, I think you found a couple photos. Uh, um, 
of the wagon wheel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was there were there were a number of different restaurants with that name. So I think I may have found I don't know if it was a chain or just a whole bunch of unrelated restaurants. I did find some photos of restaurants that met a lot of those criteria, you mm-hmm. know, but like it was maybe more central Ohio rather than on the border. You know, I feel yeah, it's funny because I'm I'm trying to remember now. Thanks pandemic, I can't remember anything. Um, but I feel like you. I believe you found a picture from a newspaper. Oh yeah, uh huh. And and you know, I again, I, I got excited because there's a VW bus in the background. Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly enough, um, that is allegedly the type of vehicle that terrorists drove. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, and and I have spoken a little bit with Greenfield about this. Um, oh, is Greenfield still alive? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, very much so. Giving interviews and is quite active on Twitter. Oh, wow. Um, and I was like, hey, I look, I'm just curious because I like VWs. Um, I I understand by way of Olav um, that he drove a bus. Do you have any recollection of what kind? Because I'm like, how cool would it be to, like, track down terrorists' old bus? <laughs> right? That, that's where my mind goes. Right. Um and he's like, honestly, I couldn't possibly tell you. He was living, Aww. you know, with a bunch of like other hippies and stuff. And okay. there were a lot of buses around. And I'm like, oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thanks for at least taking the time to answer me. So, yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, um, uh, Woody was not the only person to claim to have been visited by someone from Lanulos. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look at Woody's book, he mentions that the alleged encounter with another person from Lanulos, uh, an encounter with um, a university student who was working at the time as a as a waiter in, in a Washington, D.C. area restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and this begins what I like to call the cautionary tale of Vadig of Lanulos, um, <laughs> which was sort of written up by uh, a, an author I'm a real big fan of named Jerome Clark. I'm going to quote some of what he writes. Sure. Vadig is an extraterrestrial invented by self-confessed hoaxer Thomas F. Monteleone in March 1968 as a psychology student at the University of Maryland. Monteleone heard West Virginia contactee Woodrow Derenberger talking about his space contacts on Washington, D.C. radio WWD. Derenberger claimed to have traveled to the planet Elanulos. Convinced that Derenberger was lying, Monteleone decided to play a practical joke and to assert that he too had been to Lanulos. He called the station under the name Ed Bailey and added new details about the planet and its Derenberger readily agreed to what the caller said. To Monteleone's chagrin, the station was able to trace the call. Hmm. Derenberger's manager, Harold Salkin, phoned him and learned his true identity. A week later, Salkin, Derenberger, and the latter's wife called on Monteleone. Tape recorded the interview. In the interview, the young man reported that while driving home on an interstate highway, he witnessed a UFO landing. Two aliens emerged, and one introduced him as Vadig. Two months later, Vadig showed up at the Washington restaurant where Monteleone worked part-time. He arranged a meeting, ending the encounter as he had before with enigmatic words. 
words, see you in time. The following Sunday night, Vadig drove the young man in rural Maryland, where they boarded a spaceship and flew to Lanula, where the inhabitants walked around naked. One week later, Monteleone met Vadig and another Lanulosian for the last time. Not long after the initial interview, the Derenberger and Salkin returned to talk once more, bringing along with them occult journalist John A. Keel. <laughs> Keel, who thought Monteleone had revealed information only a real contactee would know, wrote about the Vadig encounter in a later in later magazine articles and in a book. When Vadig said he would see you in time, unquote, according to Keel, he was hinting that UFO beings, quote, originate outside of our time frame. UFOs are from another time cycle vastly different from our own, unquote. Monteleone went on to a short career as a public contact. His story appears in a book Derenberger wrote with Harold W. Hubbard in 1970, mm -hmm. cited as evidence of the authenticity of Lanulos and the author's experiences with it. In 1979, in a short article in Omni, Monteleone confects the hook, noting, quote, I contradicted Mr. Derenberger's story on purpose, but on each occasion he would give ground and in the end corroborate my own falsification. He even claimed to know personally the UFO knot. UFO knot? UFO, UFO knot. Euphonaut, who contact me, unquote. Um, and then it says, by this time, Monteleone had embarked on what proved to be a successful career as a science fiction writer. Yeah, he ended up being an award-winning author of, like, horror novels and science fiction novels. That's interesting. The, it, well, you know what I found interesting? According hmm. to his Wikipedia entry, Monteleone got his start writing articles for Amazing Stories magazine. Oh, look. Which goes back to the Shaver mystery. Exactly. So, you know... It's an interesting um, uh, uh, footnote to the story. I don't think it necessarily adds tracks from Derenberger's credibility or the reality of his experiences. No, but it, it's. I feel like it's unfortunately one of those things where, you know, I, I think it's when somebody comes along and is like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to hoax this. I, I feel like it definitely runs the risk of reducing the original story's credibility in some people's eyes it's like oh well if this person hoaxed it anybody could hoax it they fooled john keel you know whatever yeah but i mean i mean i don't know i, I think if you're gonna get into any topics this weird you're gonna run into people who are giving false information either intentionally or unintentionally no to... i i'm yeah i mean i'm not gonna disagree with that either i mean either profit motive or mental illness but i mean i think that um it's interesting because you know some people say this never happened some people say it did happen and they were they were just um you know flesh and blood nuts and bolts aliens mm -hmm. and some people say well it didn't really happen but it, they were you know entities from another dimension mystical beings you know what i mean so i mean who's to say what's real or what's not real i guess i don't know yeah i mean who knows both could be true right yeah. um reality is subjective um so yeah it that was really that was really interesting to me because i remember reading <clears throat> reading those tales and then for you to come along and be like yeah it's all a hoax and i was like wait what <laughs> <laughs> well, Ma Monteleone's thing, Vadig was a hoax. I don't necessarily yes. know that you could say. I mean, there are people who, I mean, as far as I understand, Derenberger's family, I mean, his children, I think some of his children believe him, some of his children didn't believe him, but I think they all admit to the fact that there was this guy who was showing up to their house in a Volkswagen and meeting with their dad for long periods of time, you know? Yeah, it's, I know, I mean, I know Tanya Derenberger really, you know, really, really believes you know she's she's in the second season of hell year she's written a book um called i believe it's called beyond lanulos mm -hmm. um kind of like the further no, i don't know if it's about the further adventures but like her her recollections 
Right. Um, and I've really been tempted to read it, but it's it's like less than 100 pages, and they're asking like 16 bucks for it on Amazon. Oh. I'm like, I just can't justify that right now. Maybe interlibrary loan. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm because I, mean, I am interested. Mm-hmm. But it's like, look, if I'm going to spend that much, I mean, it should be at least twice as long. <laughs> I have standards, people. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, there's there's one yeah one last bit I kind of want to touch on I know we kind of talked about um, you know the uh, the the crossroads basically of the two routes where where Woody and Indrid met mm-hmm. um, and and there is some suggestion and there has been some suggestion in the in the greater field of ufology is that that perhaps these things happen along ancient ley lines, mm. lines of power that crisscross the earth. Um, and it's something that Keel suggests in uh, Mothman Prophecies, and he quotes um, a guy named John Mitchell uh, from his book, The View Over Atlantis. Mm. Um, and so Mitchell says, a peculiar feature of the old alignments is that certain names appear with remarkable frequency along their routes. Names with red, white, and black are common. So are cold or coal, Dodd, Mary, and Lay, L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, so just again that we we get cold pop up, which Indrid cold in the cipher, if you don't know this already, equals 112, which also equals ink and black. So there's black again. You know, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, mm, okay, you know, kind of take it in, ingest it, let it roll around in your head, see what you think. But, but I want to touch real quickly on this whole third order. Yeah that wrist goes on about because it does pop up in Hellier um, uh, because allegedly Terry wrist <clears throat> sends them an email um, saying that, um, you know, the, the, the ink and black meaning injured cold uh, is isolated still. And third order MIA third order being like, you know, who he was trying to send this distress call to uh, according to their, their research and stuff. So the whole third order thing anytime i see those words pop up i kind of like pay extra attention to it um one of the tools that is used in hellier that we're going to talk about more in depth in another episode is something called the god helmet um long story short it uses um magnetic field to um, basically kind of like trick the brain into operating slightly differently. Mm. Do a sli- I'm going to do a poor example of, of describing that. Um, but one of the things it's supposed to do, I mean, people who were using it under the guidance of Dr. Michael Persinger, uh, who, who developed it, would report these almost like, um, you know, epiphanal, like seeing God moments and experiences even though they were just sitting in a chair with this helmet on and with a bunch of magnets on it they were sending these little chirp signals into the brain um and so that's how it got its nickname the god helmet well one of the things that came up in an article that um uh that greg newkirk wrote for their museum's patreon to kind of talk about um the history of the God Helmet is something called the Schumann Resonance. Okay, now the, the Schumann Resonance, um, I, I will throw a link to the Wikipedia article on it. It's a little weird. Um, so um, the Schumann Resonance is a natural, like, harmonic vibration that the planet has. And there's apparently somebody at the doorbell. Oh. Um, now, I, I'll let Kobe get it. Um, so, and that that 
frequency is round about 7 hertz. Um, The human brain also has an intrinsic frequency of about 7 hertz. Um, And there are uh, orders of harmonics above that. There's a second order harmonics kind of around the 14 range. It might be high 13. Um, And then there's a third order Mm. harmonics that happens around 20 hertz. Um, And so all these resonant frequencies um, are in what is categorized as the extremely low frequency range. 20 hertz um, is actually a vibration at which it is said some people, like if you are kind of around that kind of a hum, Uh you get this kind of like creepy feeling like something's in the room with you. Um, People have reported like, you know, having ghost-like encounters when something near them is running at that frequency. Now, I'm going to ignore the fact that extremely low frequency as an initialism spells, spells elf, and tying the elf to the fae, that's a whole other thing. I'm just going to let you all marinate on that. Whoa. So, so you know, Keel talks about ultra-terrestrials as, as, you know, being here with us, but just at a different vibrational frequency, right? And, and, and I mean, we could go back to Alien Highway. Right. We could go back to that. And some of these people who are talking about, you know, meditating and raising their vibration. Mm -hmm. Right. I think what they're all talking about ultimately is raising this uh, this Schumann resonance, getting to this third order resonance, this this harmonic Mm. where I think, you know, the idea is that 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 we as people, I think on some level above where we just operate day to day, can tune into each other. Right. And there may be this again, wild speculation, I'm putting that out there, is that, you know, there are, I'm just gonna say, entities that exist at these higher resonances. Mm. Um so at the beginning of the podcast I mentioned the Penny Royal podcast. Now they in I think their first season, they talk about something called set second order cybernetics. Um, and I'm like, where are we going? It's cybernetics. This is crazy. Um, well, uh, it, cybernetics itself in, in this context, um, like first order emerged from engineering. Uh, they tended to see systems as objects, oh. right? Um, so second order cyber cybernetics starts exploring the eternal, the internal dynamics of systems, right? And whether that is a, a computer system or you know our own system of how we live our lives stuff like that um so now if you take that one step higher third order cybernetics is defined as uh regarding a system more as an active interactive element in a circuit so relate that to the idea of the third order schumann resonance and the idea of possibly being able to you know connect you know the mind to other mind hmm. at that level and you get that active interactive element um so it's weird in that sense of this connection there's that talk again the third order you know being a signal this whole flat being a signal to the third order being like hey I'm in trouble. I need help. Um, so was it trying to raise this 
vibration, this resonance of, of where Indrid is at. Mm. Um, I mean, let me take it one step further. As And I'm only coming up with these terms because I start typing third order and Google tries to auto-complete. Hmm. There are third order neurons in the brain. Oh. The same brain that is being affected by wearing the God helmet. Full circle. Yes. So the first order neurons carry signals from the periphery, say your fingertips, to the spinal cord. Second order carry them from the spinal cord to your thalamus. And the primary function of the thalamus is to relay motor and sensory skills to the cerebral cortex. Mm. And the third order neuron carries signals from the thalamus to the primary sensory cortex. Mm. So it is it is that, that gap between, um, you know, the, the part of our brain that, you know, does the thinking and the interpretation of sensation mm. um, and the thalamus. So again, it's it's that higher resonance. It's that higher sense I think of, and we will talk about it eventually, <coughs> how it's kind of thought of that these quote-unquote higher beings, um, you know, think higher vibrational, higher resonance beings um, think and operate and communicate. It's not just communicating with words and those words have meaning. There's, there's a level higher than that that comes with it. There's a feeling that comes with it. There's a sensation that comes with it. There's a color, a smell that comes with these words that are trying to be conveyed. So I, hmm. I'm, I'm just taking yeah. that idea that Wrist introduced of the third order and going, okay, where can we make connections with this? Because I feel like connections are there. Um, and when we get to an episode in a couple months where we're talking about, you know, the tools of investigation that are used, we'll dive deeper into yeah. this. But it, since it's part of the injured cold story, I wanted to mention that as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot. This may end up being our longest episode <laughs> ever. And we may trump that. Oh, I hate using that term. We may top that <laughs> next month. I'm sorry that I think that word meaning better than should be eliminated from our vocabulary. But <laughs> that's my own feeling on things. Anyway, we may top that next month as we talk about Mothman. But before we even get to that, every month Seb is going to dig into the old-timey newspaper archives to dis unearth and discover a story of high strangeness. Seb, what do we have this month? Well, I've got to tell you, folks, we have an article called Mystery at Mindalore. It's actually not from a traditional newspaper. It's from the MUFON UFO Journal, number 134, from the March-April 1979 edition. Is this, I, is this where we get introduced to the Mandalorian? This is, yes, no, this is, this, <laughs> no, there's, there's no Baby Yoda in this story, oh, unfortunately. Dang it. But I have to tell you, folks, I have to tell you, Taylor, I had to find this story because the whole story of Indrid Cold... Whether you believe it or not, for me, at least, the part of it that was the most compelling and the part that I found most interesting was, again, this throwaway reference to a species called humanoids that like to fly around the galaxy in pink UFOs. Yeah. And I had to ask myself, okay, is this legit? I mean, legit in the sense that are there any other people in this world who are claiming to see UFOs that are pink? Because I've never heard of this phenomenon Okay, before. because I was... When you mentioned that originally in the episode, I was going to be like, I don't think I've ever heard of another case I've never heard with of a pink, pink UFO. UFO. And I want to know, is it pale pink? Is it light pink? Is it hot yeah. pink? Is it hot pink? Yeah, exactly. I've heard of every color but pink. So I was like, what can I find? And I found this crazy article that, that we're going to learn about. 
Okay, so Mindalore. Now, Mindalore, it's a town about 26 kilometers from Johannesburg, South Africa. Okay. And enter Megan. Megan is a housewife in her 30s. Her last name is spelled Q-U-E-Z-E-T. It's a French name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, so I probably, I'm not going to try to butcher it. Probably something like Kizé or something. Possibly. Quiz, quiz it. Anyway, I'm going to call her Megan. So, here we go. <clears throat> On Wednesday evening, January 3rd, 1979, she There's was... There's a Wednesday. There's a Wednesday. She was sitting in the lounge finishing off a book she had been reading. She remembers book. She remembers looking at the clock and noting that it was 10 minutes to midnight. Just then, her elder son, Andre, came into the living room, said that he had been have, having trouble sleeping, and he and could he could she make him a cup of tea, basically. It was then that Megan heard the dog barking outside, their pet dog. She went out the front gate calling to the dog. At that time, Megan and her son, Andre, became aware of a bright pink light on the top of the road. They moved quickly up towards the top of the road. As we came closer, Megan said, I could see it wasn't a plane of any ordinary kind. We approached it from the side, actually, and were rather worried as we got closer, and I didn't know what was going on. It looked so odd. As they drew nearer to the object, Megan could see that whatever it was, it was encased in this pink light, very bright, absolutely pink light. Both she and her son were adamant about the color of the light. It surrounded the craft, although Megan could see no light which may have caused the glow. There were two lights on either side of an opening they could see uh, in the side of the craft and one on top of it. The same pink glow seemed to emanate from the opening. The object was egg-shaped from the top down. At the bottom, where it appeared the egg part had been cut straight across, it was supported by four legs. Hmm. They were spider legs, not very thick, and a sucker pad fixed on each leg onto the road. Then, as they came even closer to the craft, five or six men stepped out of the opening onto the ground. One of the two nearest to us was talking quite a lot, and the other was answering in monosyllables. The one who was doing all the talking had a high-pitched voice, and the words sounded rather sing-song, but we couldn't actually hear the words, just the sound of it, very high-pitched. It was broken up and quick. I saw one of the men on the far side bend down and pick up some sand from a sandy bit on the edge of the tarmac. They were talking. I saw this man lifting the sand to his hands and he let it trickle through his fingers. They were all covered up by their overalls, with only their faces showing. Megan said the suits covered them completely so that one could not see any muscles or anything like that. Except for the two men suits over their feet and right up to their heads, leaving only their face. Hmm. Their hands were clear, as far as she could recall, and they appeared quite normal. Still looking at her, he one of the aliens, bowed low to the waist and said something. Megan thought it was a greeting of some sort, Andre said. Quote, the man said something with three syllables in it. I heard it quite clearly, unquote. His skin was dark, like Middle Eastern, a sort of olive, but he hmm. wasn't black. The man's eyes were quite translucent, as of as though I could see through his eyes. He spoke to me and I just stared at him. Then he said something to the other man uh, and that one turned and said something to the other. They weren't having a lengthy conversation, sort of just monosyllable. The next thing she knew, they had jumped back in their craft. Within seconds of the door shutting, Megan heard a buzzing noise. She described it as sounding like bees in a hive. That was the closest she could get to the sound. Then suddenly the legs elongated to about three times their length. Suddenly the object seemed to right itself. It went slightly to the left from where it was. The legs just started telescoping into the craft. The legs just started to withdraw into the craft. The legs, uh, then it hovered for about a second or two, then it shot off into the sky very quickly. The clouds were very low that night. The whole thing looked just like a pink light and it went straight up into the clouds and disappeared in about 30 seconds. But the clouds were colored that pink color for quite a while after it had gone. Megan had noted the time that she and Andre first came to the lounge, which was 10 minutes to midnight. She had looked at the clock again shortly before she and Andre went 
to bed and it was five minutes to one in the morning but there was a discrepancy of about 30 minutes plus or minus so there was missing time hmm. so here is a case you know not you know probably you know just barely a decade after Derenberger's first incident um, of ex- humanoid extraterrestrials in a craft that's very pink in color you know mm-hmm. um, you have uh, you know the dark olive skin again um, right you have weird-looking eyes, which is something that Darren Burgess humanoids had. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting because he talks about how their their speech or their language was um, very quick and rapid and sing-songy. And I know mm-hmm. that that's something that Keel talks a lot about, too. Somehow yeah. he thinks that sometimes these entities' voices sound different because they're coming from a different dimension where the, 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 the rate at which time progresses is a different kind of speed sort of mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so anyway i just i just read the story and it was just like all these things kept all these boxes kept clicking you know what i mean yeah and i just was like wow that's crazy you know so i, know, I, had, I had to bring it into the tiny show you know that's awesome no that's that's great you know, we yeah. have these almost literal hot rods from outer space totally dope got a reference wow. back to the movies man uh man that that's cool yeah that's really cool so Let's wrap it all up. I know yeah. recording-wise, we're, we're almost at two hours here. I'm so glad we were able to do this in the middle of the day because I would be asleep <laughs> right now otherwise. Um, what are we to make of this tale? What, 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 any final thoughts on um, Indrid and Woody? I, I, I'm really... I mean, it's my understanding, imperfect as it is, that there was so much flack that Woody got over the, the course of his life with story that you know by the time that he passed away in 1990, he had basically kind of stopped, you know, at least publicly talking about mm-hmm. the situation maybe because it had caused so much trauma in his life. I think if it, if it, if it, I don't think it was a intentional hoax to grab cash because if anything, it sounds like his life didn't progress in that direction. Yeah. You know, um, whether or not it's a true story, I think that Indrid, um, as a character at least has definitely had a life that's extended beyond the life of Woody. That's you know, for sure. W- w- Woody dies in 1990. In 1994, Indrid Cold's appearing in Green, in a secret cipher book, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in that sense, he's still alive. He's still with us, you know, because the story is still getting told. Like, yeah. Which I, which I think is really impressive because I, I don't find too much about Indrid that 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 is all that compelling. As strange as that sounds, you know. <clears throat> um, the only thing that I think is really compelling is is the is kind of part two of his story where he becomes a um, like a like a an exile on Earth living in a shack. You know, yeah. because that's not usually where how I think of an extraterrestrial. You know, right? Um, what do you think? What, what's your take on all of this? I, you know, I mean, I, I feel like on some level I have to, in my mind, separate it between that initial encounter and then everything that came after. Mm, okay. You know, and I, I, I think I feel, I mean, I feel pretty strongly that that Woodrow Derenberger definitely had an unusual encounter. Mm-hmm. To say the very least, I, I think once you start getting more people involved, ones who have, you know, an agenda and a point to make, then I kind of wonder a little bit more. But at that same time, it, well, I think, well, I think like the phenomena, yeah, it can be different things to different people at different times. Well, I think you may have hit the nail on the head because earlier you were talking about how you felt that part of parts of Derenberger's book didn't sound like they had been written by Derenberger. Yeah. And I think if we pull all the strands together, I mean, we have this, the tale of the, the university student, Monteleone, who did this hoax. He's saying that Woodrow Derenberger was very, I don't want to 
for lack of a better word, pliable to being manipulated by mm-hmm. by the other people around him that maybe have had an agenda. I think Monteleone's agenda was to make a hoax. Maybe Hubbard's agenda, maybe Hubbard, I have no idea, I've never met the man, but maybe he had an agenda. He had a story he wanted to tell and was able to kind of impose that on Derenberger too in the form of inserting stuff into um, the book that wasn't necessarily from... Derenberger's point of view was mm-hmm. more from Hubbard's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Keel talks about how there was stuff that Hubbard wanted to put into the book that didn't get into the book. So maybe the initial encounter with Injured Cole was factual, but then afterwards, Derenberger became sort of like a pawn used by other people, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean... No, it's and it's all speculation, and that, that is that is the, the one thing that we can always say about, yeah. you know, the phenomena and, and stuff that happens is, I mean, really... If we're not the ones experiencing it firsthand, we we don't. Right, right. You know, and that's okay. You know, we're we're gonna try to make sense of it, but could be we could we be way off base? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We're just looking at this and trying like I said a couple months ago, trying to make sense of the beautiful mystery. Although if I see a guy with his hands in his armpit with a big grin and he's talking to me but his mouth ain't moving, I'm definitely gonna believe at that point, you know? <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, no doubt. Well, folks, that is it for this month. I hope you've enjoyed our story this April. Uh, thank you for joining us on this adventure into the weirdness that surrounds us every day. If uh, if you've had an experience, if you've met somebody uh, uh, with their hands in their armpits, talking to you telepathically, and you want to share it with us, or if you have questions, uh, maybe some piece of research that we've totally missed, email us at allnightgeeks at gmail.com. You can follow us on on uh, Twitter at All Night Geeks, uh, I'll admit if you were following us on Instagram, I, I just I can't keep up with it. No. You know, and we weren't really doing anything with it. I'd get to the middle of the month and be like, "Oh, I never posted the way I had a new episode out," so uh, we abandoned it. But we are still active on Twitter at All Night Geeks. You can follow me at Bus Buddha Seventy One, and you can follow Seb. At Clan McMuffin. Indeed. Hey, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, anything in between. Please make sure to rate and review us as well. And just as importantly, share us with your friends. Word of mouth goes a long way to spread the love around. And we'd appreciate it if you tell at least one person about the podcast. Big thanks, as always, to the Ghoulies for letting us use Hot Rods from Outer Space from their album Midnight in America as our intro and outro music. Please give them a follow on social media and hit them up over at theghouliesdenver.bandcamp.com to buy their music. Links in the show notes as well if you don't want to write that down right now. Um, we have got merch, man. That's over at shop.spreadshirt.com slash N-O-T-L-G. That's right, shirts, buttons, stickers. Go check that out. Sweatshirts, not that we're really in sweatshirt season anymore, but hey, the plan ahead for fall. Um, and huge thanks, as always, to Kate the Scene Powered Mouse for doing the show's artwork. Um, you know, I know some people say, hey, the pandemic's over. Other people are saying, hey, you know, stealth Omicron. Uh, I'm saying, you know what? It's always important to help out local artists, local businesses. Please, by all means, support them. Um, if you still want to throw us some bones, uh, after you do that, you can do that over at patreon.com slash N-O-T-L-G. <sighs> My voice is tired. Um, so that's it for us this month. We will catch you next month. And in the meantime, get out and go find something weird. Good night. Good night, folks.
So at one point there's this weird confrontation where Indrid's like, you should really get naked. And Woody's sort of like, I don't know if I want to get naked. 